Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and on episode four, I sit down with Sean Sherman, the founder of Square One Systems. Square One is a system that allows for the practitioner to reset subjects' unsafe perceptions of the ground, which leads to improved posture and movement outcomes. This episode deals a lot with different neural concepts and provides a different method for assessing athletes' perceived intolerances and limited ranges of motion. Without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to episode four of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and on today's episode, I sit down to chat with the founder of Square One Systems, Sean Sherman. How are you doing? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks. I'm really excited you were able to get on. I can't wait to hear all about the system and, and all of the different things that it entails. If you would, just kind of start out by introducing yourself to the audience, what you're involved in, and uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Well, as you said in the introduction, I'm the, the developer, the founder of the Square One system, and I believe uh, I may have uh, kind of at first inadvertently come up with the first motor control restoration system in the marketplace. Uh, and I could be wrong about that, but I just haven't run across something uh, that really can be accurately compared to what we're doing. There's a lot of different systems out there that are kind of tapping into the brain and there's a lot of really cool things. But I think what we have is really, really unique and we're really uh, just organizing the nervous system so that uh, we compensate less with our most rudimentary human movement patterns. So, so like I said, I'm the developer of that. Uh, I've used that on, you know, pro athletes down to like, you know, junior high athletes. And most people who find me are actually seeking me out uh, for aches and pains where the traditional approaches to, to, to pain and rehab aren't cutting it. Uh, that's usually how people find me. But yeah, so that's in a nutshell. That's what I've come up with. My background is, um, you know, I got a four-year degree from Penn State in uh, exercise sports science. Worked for years as a personal trainer, you know, in this first, you know, decade, decade and a half or so was really on uh, around, you know, helping people get leaner, that sort of thing. Like really working with rich guys' wives. I mean, really, it's guys that are like day traders and in the markets and their wives are home and, you know, want to lose 10 pounds. That, that's what I did for years. Uh, and then I kind of got into uh, the neural stuff back in 2002. And by about 2008 is when I had my impetus moment and I kind of started taking on its own rabbit hole and you know, wasn't setting out to create my own system, uh, but that's just what happened. So I've been kind of monkeying around, experimenting for the last 13 years with the Square One stuff and um, some doors have been opened up to us. So we have some interest now from some pretty high end people like with US Special Forces. I've uh, got some pro guys that are looking to bring us in, uh, you know, baseball and a couple other sports. So some stuff's been happening here the last six months or a year or so since we took our, uh, our, our courses and put those things online. To start out with something that's neural, the, the neural idea, it's kind of beginning to catch on. There's no doubt. I see more of it throughout uh, training throughout the country, but it's still a concept that's kind of in left field for some people. Some people choose to ignore it or some people choose to just completely be uh, ignorant to it, essentially. So I do feel like it's something that's catching on. I've heard more about it in the last probably three to five years than I ever have previously. But to start out, whenever you start looking at things neurally, you're looking through a different lens uh, and you have to begin to look at things in a different way. So to start this podcast off so that our listeners kind of understand the different pathways that we go down, if we could start out by talking about rudimentary movement 
phase maps or patterns, exactly what those are and how they develop in early childhood even, uh, and, and the idea of primitive reflexes. So just giving the audience a bit of an understanding about the start okay. of everything. All right, so uh, before I get into that, uh, I'm gonna give credit to my guy, uh, he's, a, uh, he's a, actually an ATC, he's also a physical therapist here in Pennsylvania, Dr. Steve Howard. Uh, so if I botch it, I'm going to blame him. And if it's really good, I got to give him credit. So, so I've been working with this neuro-based PT. Uh, and he's been doing early infantile uh, developmental type stuff for the last 25 years. Uh, so he actually became a student of mine uh, about a, well, a little less than a year ago. But really over the last six weeks, he's been talking to me about these developmental patterns, which is really kind of timely that, 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 you're, that you want to start off there. So what Steve has explained to me is that there are these eight positions or eight patterns that really culminate in upright mature posture so so there's these eight positions and without getting too much into detail it really starts off with uh you know pattern one or position one is really this this flexion deal so when a baby is on on his belly or on her belly and it feels the safety of the ground it, it encourages the baby to go roll up into a fetal position it's nice and safe uh, he'll talk about it being, and I'm not saying he came up with these eight, uh, the, you know, Dr. Steve didn't come up with these eight positions, but he's the one who's educated me on this. But this pattern one is that that, that fetal or that symmetrical flexion pattern uh, two or position two would be symmetrical extension. So it'd be able to go in that sagittal plane and forward flexion into extension. And one plus two equals the third pattern, which is this frontal plane dominant deal, the side bend. And that leads into a quadruped position. And then, and then we have what they call uh, in, in physical therapy circles, a hook line position, which would kind of mimic sprinting or hurdling where your legs are out to the side. So one leg's internally rotated, the other's externally rotated. That leads into a tall kneel position, which leads to half kneel, which leads to upright posture. So everything we just talked about from one to eight, from this symmetrical flexion into upright posture occur really for most of us in that first 12 months, give or take, you know, maybe some kids in nine, 10 months, some slower developers, maybe 13, 14, 16 months. But that's kind of what's happening is this, this developmental sequence of uh, a baby being on his back and can roll into a ball really this, on his belly can roll up into a ball and what culminates in this pattern eight or this position eight of upright posture and that's what square one that's kind of where um where we enter the picture so within square one we're looking at two mature patterns and those two patterns are being upright and locomotion um so i didn't know any of those early developmental stuff literally until about six weeks ago i, I knew that hey there's some stuff that's going on in this early infantile thing but I never really looked into it. I, I've been really circling the wagons on this, uh, this upright, the static balance or the, you know, the, this upright, you know, posture really. And then the second piece being movement or, or, or locomotion. So what's cool when Steve's been talking to me for about a year, is like, dude, peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and jelly. Can't wait to share with you this developmental stuff that I've been playing around with for 25 years, because what you're doing, it's kind of like what I would call it at my pattern six, seven, eight is really is pattern one within square one. And then the, the, this upright bipedal mature, you know, one foot in front of the other, because babies are crawling around exploring the world on their bellies or on their backs or on their sides. But for mature developers, you know, around a year in, two years in, by the time we're six, seven, eight years old, we're pretty mature movers. We can hop and skip and run and jump, most of us. But it's really, you know, this from this, uh, you know, this little fetal developmental pattern, we're getting that fetal position and, you know, position one which culminates in being upright and then boom, the eighth pattern or ninth pattern, I guess you could call it is locomotion. And within square one, I'm, I'm going, I'm all in, you know, neck deep in 
upright and locomotion. And I'm just breaking that down because I'm not working with eight month olds and, and, and 14 month olds. I'm working with people that are at least seven, eight, nine years old and older. So that's my version of explaining that. No, there's a lot of good things there. Number one, I'm a father and my son's about two and a half years old. And whenever I actually started getting into neural stuff, I was just having kids. So like I was observing a lot of these things that you're saying. And, and whenever you really take time to step back and to think about it, the position that the child is in in the womb is going to put them in that first position anyways yep. that, that you just talked about. So I just love the neural thing because it's, it's so natural and, and it gets you going down the lines of obviously evolutionary biology and all that, but it's just so natural. Uh, and you just see these patterns arise. I, I, there were times where I'm like, Oh, he should be doing this now. And then I would check it out and I'd be like, no, actually that's, that's not a part of his developmental pattern right now. So th- those are, those are all great pieces of information. And I love how you focused on locomotion. I've had a variety of guests on now, several of them are high school coaches and they've reiterated that locomotion is extremely important to them because locomotion is the act of basically being alive, breathing, moving. Those two things are going to happen throughout almost all moments of your life. So the yep. idea that where one focuses on locomotion is extremely important. And I think most people, they feel they focus on locomotion, but they're probably attacking it from the wrong end of the spectrum, actually. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little yep. bit. Compensation is mm-hmm. a really big part of the square one system and, and mm-hmm. some things begin to creep in. So if we could talk about different sources of compensation, how we can end up in a compromised state and what mm-hmm. we can do to change that. I think that's uh, a good segue. I think within square one, I would say the problem that we're solving is this problem of neural compensation. You know, in order to move as well as we were designed to move, we would do that without compensation. But that's not really reality because none of us get to live this perfect existence where there's no, you know, the absence of any kind of bad stress, you know, where it's only just adequate amount to to facilitate and direct like growth. There's going to be times where we sprain ankles. There's going to be times where you're in car accidents. There's going to be time when you're a little kid and you wreck your bicycle. So I believe that compensation is just the way we're wired when option A is not available. So what we're looking at is breaking down locomotion into going right versus going left. And we're breaking down posture from up versus going down. So what I'm looking at or what we're looking at within square one is we're first trying to identify is this person avoiding going right and therefore favoring going left or vice versa? And the same thing with up versus down. So what we're looking at is we're trying to find where the brain or where the nervous system is perceiving that very specific joint actions are intolerant to ground reaction forces. Because you said it's, uh, you know, we're breathing and we're moving. We're going from point A to point B. So literally being upright, one foot in front of the other and breathing are kind of the three most basic pieces. So if, if something is stopping us from making the most optimal choice, I believe that the most uh, pervasive, quote unquote, thing that's stopping us from optimal, you know, that what's driving compensation is this perception that ground, that the ground itself is attacking us or the ground itself is a threat or the ground is unsafe. And that, I believe, occurs from past stress, trauma, injury. You know, you, you sprain an ankle and that hurts. So in a, in a millisecond, the brain will say, hey, let's let's unload this a little bit so that we got to take inventories is, is, is how bad is the damage? And once we know there's some damage, that's like, hey, let's let's keep load off of this ankle because we need the tissue to heal. So during that process, we still 
put one foot from the other. Life keeps going on. So we got to keep moving forward. And as we do that, we rewire. And what we're rewiring around is not just pain, but it's joint actions that the brain has learned is kind of off limits because it's unsafe. So our brain will then say, no big deal. We'll go to pattern B, you know, we'll go to option C. We'll go, we'll just keep, it'll just keep going until it can create the most efficient process or most efficient pattern in the presence of positions and actions that are perceived as, as intolerant to load. So it's like, all right, I can't use this joint action, but I still got to go from point A to point B. I still got to shoot hoops. I still got to do whatever. It's just going to work around those actions that are presently perceived as a threat. And, and that, that's what compensation is. It's just doing the best that you can with whatever limited resources you presently have available. Yeah. Compensation is, is unavoidable. And it's, it's going to happen. And there's, a again, an evolutionary reason for that. If, if we were still on the savannah, if we were still trying to survive and, and we had something wrong with this, we still have to figure out a way to survive and get away from threats, essentially. So it's, it's wired into our DNA. We'll talk about motor control in, in just a second. It is wired into your DNA. But the, the danger with compensation patterns, if you could elaborate on this a little bit, is that you're shifting the function of one portion of your body to another, correct? The increase in injury should go up exponentially from there, correct? I would think so on most of us because we're, we're, we're again, we're going, we're going with option B or C or quadruple Z. And we're designed to function optimally. So when it's not there, every tissue, like you said, every tissue in the body, that load that ability to absorb load is being shifted a little bit from the left side to more on the right to keep it as simple as possible. And now all of a sudden there's a greater demand. And at some point, the tissue is going to break or we're just going to suffer in that our, our performance either plateau or start declining because now we're asking muscles to do jobs that are their second and third feature as now their primary function. So it's just not going to work out very well. And that's going to lead to abnormal wear and tear. You're, gonna, you're talking about leftover, unchecked over the course of, of years and decades. Now you're talking about maladaptation. Now you're talking about bone, you know, bony surfaces wearing away. So now you're talking about hip replacement in the future. You're talking about osteoarthritis. You're talking about blowing out tissue that like, I'm just bending over to pick up a pencil. Like how do I, I just did deadlifts yesterday. I'm bending over now and I hurt my back. Like what's going on? And what it is, is we're just asking tissue to, to perform its second, third, fourth feature. And it's kind of having to do it as the primary. And it's like, it's going to break at some point. And I, I see the things that you're saying. Like I work with athletes on a daily basis and I see kids that sprain an ankle and they'll go through PT and they'll, they'll rest it and they come back and their gait pattern is completely mm-hmm. off. And I see it, I observe it. So that's why I'm so interested in a system that will allow you to address that issue. It being the ground makes a ton of sense. I'll get into that in just a minute. But as far as the system, I love where it starts up, down, left, right. It's simple. And and people overcomplicate things. That's such an easy place to start. Whenever I first began to look at the system, you said up, down, left, right, get up and go. All these things make so much sense because that's what the human body does. So every way that you describe that makes a ton of sense. So one of the areas I would like to kind of delve into now, because you call yourself a motor control restoration system. So motor control is a word that I feel like a lot of people understand. And then a lot of people might have the wrong perception of. So I first want to kind of define that. And uh, one of the things that I've seen mentioned from you is that motor motor control is a pattern generation, essentially. And it's, it's something that we are pre-wired with at birth. And over time, that's what erodes, correct? 
that that would be my belief based on everything I've learned at this point. I think what you just said is absolutely lock and step with my beliefs. Absolutely. So it's really uh, like a lot of people talk about, I'm going to train motor control. Like, uh, I don't know if we can, I think it's kind of, we're wired, it'll generate a pattern and then kind of maybe I'm getting to your next question, but motor learning is how we acquire and refine and, and, and get better at patterns and skills. And to me, it's like, skills are not wired into us. Those require practice. We have to learn those things. And that comes through rehearsal and, and practice, but I'm trying to break it down to like, what are the most basic ingredients that we need? So prior to having a skill or a learn pattern, we have these basic patterns, these wired patterns of getting up and go. And really that's, that's wired into us. And we're always going to make the most efficient choice based upon what we have available. So we don't really need to, I don't think we really need to train. I could be wrong. I don't think we need to train motor control. It is what it is. So the whole key is, can we find where there's deficiencies and how we generate these patterns? So we can find these missing pieces, plug that stuff back in, and then you go right back into training. So I, that's why I kind of a little bit, I got to be careful of who the audience is. I don't want to upset everybody, but this whole idea of, of corrective exercise, like it's like, ah, oh, it drives me crazy. So my whole thing is like, yeah, I get it. You're seeing something that looks ugly. And instead of trying to figure it out what it is, what, you know, okay, if we do this and this is tight because of that, there's a lot of logical things that make a lot of sense, but not all logical guesses can be simultaneously accurate. So it really comes down to is where's the problem up, down, right, left. If we can find out what the brain is wired to avoid because the past stress and trauma and injury and we can plug that back in and just show the brain like hey here's safe once the brain knows there's safety it won't avoid so you don't need to rehearse motor control you just need to restore it and then you do your training so whether you're doing you know rehab exercises or you're working on the other end of the spectrum with a high level athlete who's you know fairly healthy and you're trying to train them to jump higher run faster flip more weight over their head whatever you're trying to specifically do my whole deal is we got to restore motor control and then we can do an intelligent form of motor learning based on what's their goal. What do you know? What equipment do you have? What part of the season? And there's all those things we can analyze. That's all downstream in my mind. Yeah. The, the thing with motor control is again, going back to like a baby, essentially, whenever you have a baby there, there's like no resistance almost in their movement, essentially. I mean, you could take mm. their leg and, and put it over their head. Right. right. So a lot, with a lot of the things that we just alluded to with motor control being at peak, whenever you're born, you're not compromised. There is little to no compensation. And then all of a sudden you look at a 95 year old man, he's lived a hard life and he can't even bend over to tie his shoes. Right. right. And we think in a lot of other methods, probably we think there's a lot of other reasons for that, but it's just the accumulation of stress and, and what the mind is telling me what I can and cannot do essentially. So a lot right. of those things make sense. I would agree uh, wholeheartedly with a lot of the things that you just said there. So anybody that's familiar with the system or they're not would understand, hopefully, that isometrics play a big role within uh, square one. It's, it's yep. what the whole system is based around, essentially. So I'd like to kind of go into isometrics, how they increase neural drive and how you got to the realization that that would be the best way to pinpoint hmm. these compensations. I guess if we start at the end there, like how I came up to use uh, isometrics, uh, it really was... It wasn't based upon neurology initially. It was really about efficiency because, um, you know, I came out of this other system, this other neuro-based system, and I was getting great results with that. And uh, but I had this impetus moment that kind of took me down this rabbit hole, square one, where we're finding these, these joint actions that presently perceiving the ground as a threat. 
And at first I was trying to narrow it down to the specific muscle level. So for example, if, if knee flexion was an issue, I was testing like the medial head of the gastroc and the lateral head of the gastroc and all four heads of the hamstrings and sartorius and the popliteus and any muscle that crossed behind that joint that in the open chain, when the foot's not in the ground, if this person was in outer space, one of the muscles that when they contract create knee flexion, I was specifically testing all the different divisions of all these knee flexors and whatever one was insufficient in its ability to generate force in a split second, I was doing this origin insertion palpation to fire up the muscle. And I'm like, you know, this stuff's really cool, but it'd be really nice if I didn't have to create, because that's actually kind of painful. A lot of people, you find a muscle, it's not, doesn't have a good neural drive. A lot of times it's inflamed. So here I'm torturing these, uh, these clients. I'm like, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could just do this through movement? Uh, and I started messing with isometrics. I started messing with concentrics and eccentrics. And right away, what I loved with isometrics, and all of them were working, like concentrics, eccentrics, as long as I was, I was working, if we found that knee flexion was the issue with the, as far as the perception of ground as a threat, whether I had them do isos, eccentrics, or concentrics, they all worked. And isometrics are just so much quicker. We'd literally have them do a two-second isometric, and it was working as well as if I had them do like three eccentrics. And like, well, do I want to take 30 seconds or do I want to do two seconds? So literally, that's why I chose to do isometrics. And then you start getting into why are isometrics fairly uh, impactful. Anybody who knows anything about you know, muscle physiology um, is probably aware of this, but a muscle will be mechanically at as strong as in its mid-range. You know, when it gets into too, too much of a shortened position or too elongated, mechanically, the further you get away from a 90 degree force angle, how that muscle attaches into a bone or to a lever, the further we get away from 90 degrees, we're losing uh, some of that in, uh, impact of the muscle. So we're going to be like getting to a weaker, weaker, weaker mechanical disadvantage uh, as we move close or further away from a 90 degree angle. Now, neurologically, muscles uh, have the highest neural drive in an elongated position. So I always use the example of like, as you're doing a bench press and at the bottom of the range where that pec is totally stretched out, that, ner that, that nervous system better be really plugged into that pec because if it gives way, you're going to blow out all kinds of structures in your shoulder. So a stretched muscle is neurologically very strong. And as you go into a shorter and shorter and shorter position, it becomes neurologically weak. So then if you think about mechanically and neurologically, the weakest position a muscle could be in would be a shortened position. So I started doing isometrics in shortened position. So I found if it was, if the perception of right cervical rotation was where the brain was presently perceiving the ground, you know, ground forces to be a threat, I would literally have my clients and my athletes perform isometrics in a very extremely shortened position. So that's kind of the history of it. A little bit out of efficiency initially, jived with the neurology that a short position is a really where there's a uh, like kind of a tamped down neural input so if we can drive neural input into these short positions it's going to carry over to the full length of the muscle no matter if it's in mid-range or elongated range so it transfers really nicely from shortened into everything you're going to do in the real world yeah that, make, that makes a lot of sense for for people that are listening the isometrics are probably a little bit different than what they think if you're just a strength coach you're thinking about isometrics so this would be done in table test style correct yeah yeah most everybody's on a table we can do an upright version but yeah we we tend to do it on a laying on their back and we find out where, where there's an issue whether there's a perception issue and then we just do very shortened uh position isometrics as the intervention 
So moving to the idea, something we haven't covered yet is the idea of the ground reaction forces, because cool. that's that's another big part of the puzzle with this system. Uh, mm -hmm. Anytime you look up any of the content that you're putting out, it has to do with the perception of the ground. You've mentioned it multiple times. That's mm -hmm. that's another thing that as I've tied myself more into the neural perspective that I've seen about, you know, the intolerance of the ground. Cal Dietz was the first guy that I saw hmm. talk about it and then my mind was just kind of like, okay, I need to explore this more. And then it pops back up again in your system. Matt Van Dyke's really honestly the reason that I found your system. Oh, cool. I went over to Texas uh, for a get together over there and he nice. and then about a week later he had square one up and I was like, well, what is this? Started looking at it. Right. Oh, so cool. the, the idea of ground reaction forces uh, and how we perceive the ground why is that such a cornerstone within your program? And why is that such a major piece of how we perceive our movement patterns, essentially, how we generate our own movement patterns? Can you discuss that a little bit? I think it's so important because, you know, I think of movement as it's an experiment, right? And the person, the athlete you're working with, that's like our test subject. And you got to think about all the different variables. You have all the body parts, you got bones and muscles, and you got nerves, you got a brain, you got all the internal stuff going on. But one or really two things that are pretty constant in every movement experiment is gravity and the ground. So for the most part, uh, I'm pretty confident that tomorrow when we wake up, the ground's still going to be pretty hard. Right. So these are these fixed variables in this experiment is the ground's pulling us into the ground, essentially trying to pulverize us. And, you know, so it's kind of smushes between a rock and a hard place. So it's our ability to to stand upright against that force and our feet are underground. So all of our, our all of our athleticism, the real world plays out in this hard ground. So just it's almost like we take it for granted, but it's like it's like, oh, it's one plus one is two. But like, yeah, it's so important. The ground and how we interact with the ground is like. Like it's, I think we just skim past it so many times early in our career. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I got it. It's ground. It's hard. I'm like, no, do you understand that if you cannot use the ground effectively, that means you're going to be wasting time trying to handle the ground and figure out how to absorb shock. And your opponent is already past you because you already used the ground, create all these cool muscle contractions, effectively use the ground to push off. And he, he's, he's a half a step ahead of you because you're still trying to figure out how to absorb well. So I think the ground is just so underappreciated with movement, whether we're talking about grandma with the three hip replacements or the best athlete in the world, that those of us who can use the ground most efficiently in as quick a period of time as possible, those are your best movers. It just is. So that comes down to, can you absorb shock well, and then can you generate a response to that overcome gravity super fast? That really is I mean, if you want to talk about athleticism, that's what it is right there. So those who can use the ground effectively are your best movers, least amount of pain, all that kind of stuff. As far as ground reaction forces, whenever that foot hits the ground, like like I've heard Dietz explain, the fact that you do have to absorb the shock. Mm -hmm. And if you don't absorb it directly in the foot and ankle structure, then it's going to travel up. And what's going to end up happening is, again, probably those compensation patterns. Why? Because force is going everywhere. And everywhere. then you've got to neurally deal with that. Essentially, the brain's got to downregulate things to deal with it. So it makes a ton of sense to me. And I was glad, you know, it, seeing that in the system, the fact that that's a foundation in your system, it, it makes a lot of sense to go hand in hand with those isometrics. So I was just wanting to kind of reiterate how, ground reaction forces are utilized in your isometrics here in your square one system, pretty much. You know, at first it inadvertently coming up with square one, because what it was is, you know, I'll spare you guys the details right now, but I had this impetus moment with this one client and it was one of these deals where I'm like, 
holy crap, I'm the dumbest human being on the planet, right? That, that's really what I felt after I had this, this awesome success with this client because I kind of basically took an opposite approach from whatever the mainstream was back in 08. So instead of pursuing tight tissue like everybody else was, I, I was doing that with this guy for a long time. And when I kind of did the polar opposite, I had this totally amazing result with this guy. So what I wanted to know was how is the body designed to move in the presence of, uh, in the presence of gravity in the ground? So, cause I'm like, man, I, I have to know how the machine is supposed to work before I can even try to fix another person. So I kind of got lucky with this guy, honestly, to be totally transparent, but I'm like, wow. The first question was, you know, my whole thing was I started, uh, I started having a distrust for range of motion and mobility exams because the system I came out of was all about comparing right side of the body versus left and restrictions and range of motion. And as soon as I dumped that with this one client, we had this killer result. So like, whoa, man, I don't even know what I'm looking at. I don't think any of us really have a, a, a clear concept of watching somebody move. I think when we watch people move, all we can see is, wow, that's ugly. And we can come up with very logical scenarios as to what's causing that, but it's just until you prove it on that person and then on the second person and then a thousandth person, it's just a guess. And people tend to fall in love with their logical guesses. And I'm like, I'm done with that. Like, so I was smart enough to know that I was a moron. And what I really wanted to do was I need to understand what happens when the foot hits the ground. So a lot of people get fixated on the big toe and all the toes and the foot. I'm like, that's great. But I want to know what I, I, I believe when the foot hits the ground, the whole body hits the ground. So I want to know how all the joint actions, how does that play out in three planes every joint in the body. So that's what I knew is that I knew a good question to ask. And I was looking around and I was Googling it. I was looking at books. I was looking for a map of all these joint actions that were correlating with locomotion. And there's parts of it here and there, but I couldn't find one definitive source. So that really started off with, it was an experiment to understand what actually happens when the foot hits the ground. So that was, I was just really trying to answer that question. And I inadvertently came up with a system to address it, not only to have an understanding of it, but to be able to analyze people and find out and customize it to the individual where every single person is having a problem with the ground. So it's not just all these left-handed basketball players that are power forwards. It's more, no, if you're a human being and you have a heart rate and you're breathing, I want to find out where you personally have an issue with the ground because so many times none of us know. We know what's tight and where it hurts but we don't really know what's driving that need to kind of skew these uh, length tension relationships. We're, we're very aware of, oh yeah, my hammy's tight on one side and I get this groin thing on the other side. Oh, okay, that's great. And you can start building a story around it, but I don't care about what story I can concoct or the next guy can concoct. What I want to do is interview the nervous system and find out where every single person is having a problem with ground forces. So often I've, I've alluded to it on this podcast a couple of times with a couple of guests that I'm just not a huge fan of uh, yoga and static stretching and, and all these different ways of assessing range of motion. Uh, I hope whenever people listen to this podcast, they step away that understanding that we are freeing, you're freeing up range of motion uh, in joints that did not, did not previously have the correct range of motion. So there are other ways to go about it. I find so many people because they don't want to dive down the rabbit hole. They just go and they stretch different muscle groups that probably have nothing to do with the origin of the problem. So everything right. you said, the ground being the origin of all movement-based issues or where things start, that's where the foot's going to strike first. And then all of the force absorption makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to throw some things out there about motor learning because we've talked about motor control. So motor learning is where you're actually going to acquire and refine different motor skills and I want to just kind of throw this at you because I'm a sports prep coach and I work with athletes and you're a movement specialist 
So I've heard you allude to the three planes here of uh-huh. motion. And motor learning is the acquiring of new skills, refinement of new skills. It could also be the loss of skills as well, correct? Is, sure. That, sure. is that how you right. would refer to it? What I'm trying to get to is I see a lot of sagittal plane dominance within the strength and conditioning world. So with you working with so many different people on so many different levels, Mm -hmm. where do you see people most often compensate because of the way that we prepare athletes in such a sagittally dominant manner? Interesting. All right. Uh, I don't know if it's because of our preparation or not. It could be. So I don't want to assume it is because I'm always trying to check myself. Like, where am I making assumptions? And because some of our assumptions are so logical and it very well could be because we have a sagittal plane dominant type of training in, in really in the Western world or probably across the world. But uh, it's funny is uh, the area I find the most issues. It, it is the frontal plane. I find across the board, uh, you know, we're looking at right versus left. So we're really looking at within square one. I think we have 210 to 214 different joint actions that I can kind of pick you apart and find out where you are presently having a problem. And what's interesting is the most common things I see is lateral flexion of the lumbar spine and hip abduction. And that what's really cool about that, like what's cool and what's not so cool is everybody's talking about that. Like you have like guys focusing on the glutes and there's a reason, man, because when we focus on, you know, hip abduction, hip extension, it, we get a lot of bang for our buck with that with a lot of people. But if I, if I look at all the different joint actions I could possibly assess, I'll bet you out of those 214 joint actions, I'm seeing hip abduction and lateral spine flexion in the lumbar spine. That might represent 10, 15, 20% what I'm seeing. So it's like a really disproportionate amount of issues. You know, if each one of those are representative, like a quarter of 1% of where there could be a problem for those that even have five or 10% of the problems, that's like getting my attention a lot of times on people. So I think, you know, there's a reason people are doing clamshells and doing some banded, you know, sidestepping things. It makes sense. Now, the problem is we're a composite of all kinds of layers upon layers upon layers of, of, of garbage. So it's only going to get you so far with most people. So you can't just lateral sidestep somebody to take care of all their pains across everybody in your whole team. You got to be able to customize it. But to answer your question, hip abduction and lateral flexion of the lumbar spine are my quick answers. That's what I see all the time. Athlete, non-athlete, young and old, I see it all the time. As far as my programming here here in the last couple of years, I'm always looking at not really what I'm going to accomplish, what I'm actually going to take away from my athletes by them doing this workout. I've kind of like reverse engineered it. And I'm like, like well, what, what's going to suffer by them doing this workout essentially so that I can then come back and prepare them with something that's going to offset that essentially. So mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time, I've spent more time looking at what things do to people rather than the, the benefits that's going to get out of it essentially. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I was interested in that. I like that. So yeah, it's, like, it's like get rid of the hole, man. Like if you get rid of that, all this other stuff's going to come along for the ride. So it's like, oh, wow, check it out. They're now jumping higher, less pain because I filled in a gap. I love it. Looking at square one system. Now I'd like to give you a little bit of time to talk a little bit more about square one, what it is, what it does differently uh, and how it compares to other standards within uh, the same industry. So one of the things that I've seen you say is that if you allow neural compensation to persist, it means you're going to waste a lot of time on correctives. And we've kind of alluded to that already. And right. I, I see all kinds of fancy stuff that happens out there with trainers that, that feel like they're fixing things. Square one seems to be something that if, if you're willing to put in the time and invest in yourself, it's something that could be very beneficial and very simple. So mm-hmm. with that being said, how does square one look at things in a different manner than mm-hmm. other things within your industry? 
All right. I, that's a great question. Um, we probably alluded to it, you know, throughout this whole conversation. Uh, if you had to give me like, okay, give me five, if I can only say it in five seconds, I really think we've already talked about it. It really comes down to addressing this perception that the ground is a threat. So that's really what we're doing. So I'm not really thinking in terms of muscles anymore. I'm really trying to find out joint actions because if we go back to the, um, the definition of motor control, it's pattern generation. And I, I what I've done to come up with my definition of motor control. All I did is I, I just like kind of Googled it and I started looking at all these different definitions. So I kind of took a best of list and what it really, if I boiled it all down to its, its bare bones, it really is pattern generation. And most people are talking about multiple joint actions working together as the definition of a pattern. So my whole deal is I'm looking at, I'm not seeing muscle anywhere. So I'm looking at joint actions, joint actions, joint actions. And I'm not, I'm not saying that muscles aren't important. I think when we take a muscular vantage point of human movement, I think we're actually muddying the waters. And that's probably very heretical to a lot of people in our industry because we've all been trained muscle, muscle, muscle. And I'm saying, yeah, muscles are super cool, but muscles are so cool, you can't even isolate them. So we can emphasize this tissue or that tissue, but if you're running an experiment and you can't isolate your variables, your experiment's going to suck, right? So it just is. And if you're working with all these different people and have this guy has pain and this guy wants to jump higher, she is recovering from a hip replacement. Uh, I'm looking for the commonalities that we all share. So I think the commonality is joint action. So, so to answer your question, I think what square one is doing, it's really a perception issue. Where is the ground hot? Like, oh man, like it's like, I think about being a little kid. I, I was thinking like an analogies. I have a twin brother and I, when we were little kids, and back in the seventies, we're running across you know, the grocery store and there's the different tiles on the floor and there's always these red tiles and these different color ones. So the red ones are the lava. So we're jumping all over the grocery store trying to avoid lava. We're doing that all the time. And we don't even know it. So it's really, where's the, where's the brain perceiving the ground to be a threat? We're addressing that. So yeah, it took like two minutes to tell you that, but that's really what's separating us from everybody else. And I really think what we're ha what we have here. And this is not to be political or to kiss anybody's butt or not to upset anybody. I think what we have in square one is it's really the ultimate compliment to other stuff that's out there. So I'm not going to be a guy that's going to poo-poo everything that's out there. Everything, including square one, has its shortcomings. Square one, I'm very transparent about it. The biggest shortcoming is it takes some... It takes some determination and some and some effort to get good at the muscle testing and to work the system. There's no doubt. Another shortcoming is if you give me 10 athletes right now in 20 minutes, I can't run square one. I could do, you know, 21 minute sessions and that's going to be of very limited importance and impact. So it's, it's limitation is it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. So it's not always great in a team setting. Now, that being said, I think it's an awesome compliment whether someone is a tissue, like a body worker, a massage person, if they're a yoga person, if they're a Pilates person, a strength coach. I think what we have in square one is a common, I'm thinking of what's his face, Gray Cook talking about looking for standard, standard operating procedure. I think that's what square one is. I think what it is, this is a starting point. And I think what we can do is we can, we can run people through a series of deadlifts and cleans, or we can run them through some tissue, um, you know, manipulation and, 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 and some tissue work, like, you know, going after tight tissue, what have you. And you can always come back and, and look at how did square one, how do we can use this system to find out how the nervous system perceived that previous intervention as a threat or not. And when we find a threat, what we do is we, we tidy, we get organization 
around locomotion and get up. And then we use that threat. We use that lift. We use that intervention as the threat. And we challenge the nervous system with these different systems. So I think everything has some value. And I think that square one actually can make it cohesive where cool, man, you can be a physical therapist doing this. You can be a chiropractor. You could be a body worker. You could be a strength coach. And this is a kind of a common language of uh, we're trying to restore motor control on those rudimentary patterns. Everybody is happy with that. Everybody gets the results of that. Again, a lot of the things you said made, made a ton of sense because the world that I came into when I first came into SNC, everything was muscle centered and, and muscle, muscle still um, is definitely going to be the way that most people view it. I told you this would kind of be a different lens by listening to this episode. And, right. and once you start viewing things through that lens, it's kind of like you, you step off into the Wizard of Oz, essentially, and you're in a different world. Yeah. So I like it because it makes a ton of sense, multi-joint approach, because we're talking about dynamic movement. I often allude to that on my Twitter that we're, we're working through uh, slings and fascia just as much as we are muscle, but most people don't want to discuss that. And multi-joint movements are what you're going to ask them to do in sporting movements anyways. It's not going to be a muscle that's just sitting there with, with no other actions occurring. So I, I think that's where the shortcoming occurs with the muscle-centered approach. And it's, mm-hmm. it is totally intimidating. It's more intimidating to me than trying to study yeah. different areas of the nervous system. Anatomy can be, it can drive you crazy. So that's, that's something that Definitely has always stood out to me. Build on that. I, I, one time about two, three years ago, I'm like, I just looked at the latissimus dorsi because that's like one of these pet muscles. Well, everybody cares about the transverse abdominis, the internal oblique, TVA, the lat, the glute. There's like these seven, eight, nine pet muscles we all care about. So I'm like, let's just look at how frustrating this can be. So I actually wrote down like all the jobs and roles and functions of a lat. I had like 60 some functions and I'm sure I was missing things. So like, what do you mean? So, oh, it's a lap problem. Like, oh, is it is the hand underground or is it open chain? Is the foot underground? What what position you're starting from? What are you trying to do? Like, I mean, there's a lot of it. Just leads to more and more questions, and those waters get so muddied. So it's easy to have a name to like. Oh, you got a lap problem. Like, okay, that's like that's like so opaque that it's like totally useless to a guy like me. Like, what do you mean you got a lap problem? Like, in, in what environment? Like, what, like I need more information. So it actually, it sounds, it's, I think people try to hide behind language. Cause I think a lot of times in our industry, people are afraid to be the guy that doesn't know anything. And I'm like, dude, even the smartest people I know, know almost nothing. They almost like, they kind of go down a rabbit hole and they have a very, a lot of depth in like one, maybe two subjects. And that's okay. It's okay to be a moron in other areas. And that's, that's, I, I and that's me kind of, I'm talking to myself. Like, it's okay. I don't need to know everything about everything. I just, if, I, if we get this one piece, it's really cool. So I, I just kind of, like, and I talk to people in the industry, I like to give them a little bit of uh, like, have a little grace with yourself. Like, dude, it's okay. We already know you don't know too much. None of us do. We still don't. So like a lot of times I think people try to hide behind language. Like, oh yeah, this dysfunction, that deficiency, compensation, we're hiding behind language. Like, what are we all talking about? So I'm trying to drive the language as, as simplistically as I can. And, but I think we're talking about stuff that's like people kind of have skipped over. And I don't know. I, I just kind of, I'm trying to make this complicated movement thing as simple as we can. Right, left, up, down, safe, unsafe, and you've just exhausted about everything I know right there. That's about 99% of everything I know. But then by, by being a master of a couple of things, it really kind of lets me help best athlete in the world to the worst athlete in the world. We've seen everybody get some help with really becoming a master of some basic elements of neurology and movement and ground and, you know, just some basic pieces. And I'm the, the basics never get, 
boring to me. Like I, I'll let other people go down other different rabbit holes. I just like uh, focusing on these basic pieces. That, that all makes a lot of sense because the, the more things that you focus on, I've, I've spread myself thin before. And I said, I just have to step back and this has to be my area to focus on. So whenever you can say, I want to become a master in something, it'll lead you other places eventually as well. So totally. I, I think what you, what you have at square one is, is a great uh, starting place and a great place for people to expand their minds uh, and see things in a different lens and see things and probably a more effective lens, something that's going to be simpler down the line if you're just willing to put in a little bit of work. Uh, I have two more questions. One thing I want to kind of look at, I don't know what what you'll throw out about this, but the role of vision and the the role of the vestibular system in movement as well, because I've seen you allude to that with square one system. Uh, Obviously you're tied in very closely with Dan Victor. He's really big on the vestibular system and vision. So Mm -hmm. if you could just talk a little bit about how the vestibular system and vision can uh, affect posture and movement patterns. Awesome. All right. Great question. Yeah. So if you look at the postural control system, the PCS, the, the three subsystems that make up our ability to just essentially be upright and not fall down, right? It really is. You, you've, we've been talking about the whole time. So it's the vestibular system, the visual system, and then somatosensation. So the vestibular system, you know, and I'm not an expert on visual vestibular. I'm, I'm just not. But the, vis, uh, the vestibular system, it's like these, these little uh, semicircular canals in our ear. And there's, you know, this thick viscous fluid, little hair-like structures, and there's little crystals. So when I tilt my head to the right, there, I don't know which one because I'm not an expert on the different semicircular canals, but there's, there's a canal in there and some of that, that fluid will shift. And it's how our brain picks up the sense of where our head is located in space. So even when we close our eyes, we tilt our head forward or back, our vestibular system is letting us perceive where we're tipping forward, back, side to side, turning, what have you. And then our visual system, our eyes, some people estimate that 70 to 80% of our ability to stand up is driven by visual inputs. So you know, we have depth perception and we have convergence and divergence that we get closer to things or things come closer to us. So there's a there's a whole area of science obviously on the vestibular or I'm sorry, on the visual system. So those are two very, very, very important pieces is visual and vestibular. And then the third piece is somatosensation. And that's, you know, for a little bit fancy speak for, I, I think of it as body feel. So soma, soma is body, sensation is like what we feel. So I, I try to break it down into, we have an external feel and an internal feel. So external feel, we're picking up clues and, and information and inputs from our external environment outside the body through the skin. So we feel our foot touching the ground. You feel the grip, you know, your hand grabbing a baseball bat or whatever sport you're doing. You know, you feel the wind hitting your skin and, and the little hairs on your skin. And we're picking up all this input from our external from the skin and my area that i really focus on is that internal feel and so internal feel or internal somatic sensation further breaks down to two areas uh, proprioception and kinesthesia and a lot of times we can just lump that together so it's awareness of how we are oriented in space like a position and kinesthesia is movement so that is really being fueled by length tension relationships of muscles so it's really the stretching and the compression of these forces acting on our soft tissue internally and there are little sensors in there and they're sending electrical signals back to the brain oh this muscle is being stretched this one's being compressed so based on that we get a mental picture of our position in space so it's kind of like a like a DUI test, close your eyes, touch your nose. Like, how do you do that? That's pretty amazing. That's really the culmination of visual, vestibular, and somatosensation. Uh, so how I'm using 
visual and vestibular within a square one system. Well, within a square one system, what we're doing is we find disorganization within right, left, up, down. And, you know, without getting too many of the details, we are able to bring organization to that super quick. A skilled square one person can bring that organization back in 10 seconds, 30 seconds, under a minute, typically. And then what we do is we like to challenge the nervous system. So we'd like to throw different vestibular and visual and somatosensory challenges at the athlete. So I start with, a lot of times I'll start with just basic breathing uh, drills and exercises. And I want to make sure that the nervous system doesn't perceive those activities as a threat. And then we can either drive this down with well, so many different options, but lately I've been driving it into these early developmental sequenced patterns. Like we talked about earlier in this conversation pattern, you know, position one, two, three. So I've had to break them through these early developmental sequences or I'll give them visual challenges. I'll give them vestibular challenges. So if I have a golfer, I'll have them address the ball, I'll have them close one eye, or I'll have them do uh, eye convergence, or I'll have them tilt his head to the right, and I'll, I'll have some moving objects he's trying to watch. So I'll challenge visual and vestibular centered around what this athlete needs to uh, accomplish to be the best version of themselves. So it's really this hodgepodge collection, really, of early developmental sequencing, visual, vestibular, somatosensory challenges. And we're still, that's the part that's really um, still evolving within square one is to come up with a systemized selection of, of triggers. So in a short answer is I'm using vestibular, visual and developmental sequences in order to trigger the nervous system. And I'm trying to do is challenge everybody where their nervous system doesn't flinch anymore and they take it all in stride. So I'm trying to do into my table sessions in, in my studio, or if I meet them at their home or whatever, I'm trying to throw neurological challenges at them that exceed what they're going to face in the game. So that's why we have these guys like, how the freak is this stuff like sticking? Like I just played football. Like, like, yeah, dude, cause think about the crazy stuff we're having you hopping on a BOSU ball with your eyes closed. And I'm trying to, and I'm hitting you with like tennis balls. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can kind of eventually get to so so that's a long loaded answer but it's kind of a big question you asked back then again input and output is that's yeah. been what what we've been focusing on yep. and people that elevate this stuff and don't want to think about it or and are that are intimidated by it you just need to realize input and output i, and breathe, what output, I see i step all those things happen every day. There's several times, like if you're looking at your cell phone and you're walking and that's my visual field right there. Right. Occasionally I lose everything. And then all of a sudden I perceive that I'm not safe anymore. And before I'll continue to follow through the rest of my step, I've got to check myself visually right there. Yep. So I've, I've seen that actually. And, and we, again, we just skip over it. Uh, breathing. Oh, we just look over it. Yep. Our, our uh, reaction with the ground. We look over it. Our, our vision. We look over it as far as like things that I've seen with athletics. And I've heard coaches allude to this. If you transition between surfaces, the way that the foot's going to strike the ground and, and the way that you're going to interact is going to change completely. So these are things that I see confirmed all the time, right? It's the input. And then something is going to be output from the system. Uh, yep. In regard to that, that's that's as simple as you can boil it down to people that, that aren't into neural things. You have to start thinking about something's being input to my system one way or another. And, and you have to think about what's being put out and where can I trace that back to? And that's why I love square one system. I love, I love that. that you guys are continuing to develop things and you're continuing to work for it. It sounds like you're still adding things onto it. Oh, and, yeah. and a good system is always going to do that. You're never just going to say, this is what I have. And I believe in what I have. You believe in your product, but there's always ways to grow and there's always ways to continue building upon that. So I love oh, yeah. seeing that. Yeah, we're going deeper. And I love how you said we're tracing it back. I love that. It's like 
input dictates output or input drives output. And when there's problems, what are you tracing it back? I think that's, you just enunciated very beautifully and eloquently what we're doing with square one. It's like, we're tracing it back to, I'm not going to say we're getting to the source because we're always learning things, man. We're always trying to go deeper and deeper. So I, I just, I would say we're getting closer to the source than just about anything I've come across. So I liked how you said that tracing it back. Thank you. The last thing I'd kind of like to do is give you an opportunity to talk about any resources where they can find Square One System. I'm, I'm sure. going to link it at the podcast. So just an opportunity to talk about any of the resources that you have there. We didn't sure. talk much about Signal 6, if you want to throw in sure. what that is, because cool. there's probably a lot of coaches that will listen to it in high school that can sure. utilize that very easily. So if yeah. you want to put that in there. For sure. All right. So I think the best way to stay current with what we're doing is definitely on Instagram. Um I, I try, I'm, I'm not great at putting out pretty pictures, but uh, I'm trying to be better about that. But I'm, that's where I'm kind of, it's kind of like my soundboard. So we're putting on like different testimonials or just different ideas we have, different concepts. So that's kind of where we're updating at the most. We probably put out, you know, maybe five to 15 posts a week. Uh, so that's easily the best place to kind of get yourself up to speed on us real quickly. Facebook, a little less, uh, less or so. Uh, you know, we got a website. And that's where you could like buy some of our products, like some of our informational products. But on Instagram, it's, you know, that's that was at square, the number one system. So it's at square one. Give us a follow. A lot of times if you're, if I see you have a title, like a strength coach, I'll probably follow you back and whatever, man, we can connect through, you know, messages there or whatever. That's the best place to learn from us. I think right now, uh, if you go to our website, it's just square, the number one system.com. That's where people can buy some different courses. Right now we have two courses out there. You know, we have the square one system and that is our, that's our flagship. I kind of think it'll always be our flagship because it's our basis. And I don't envision that ever changing. Um, we'll build some different pieces on top of that deeper than or downstream from there. But that's, that's for someone who really, in my mind, who really wants, like you just said, to trace things back to more uh, like a source matter, try to find out where the inputs are kind of disorganized, get that better organized so it changes outputs. Uh, and that's great for people who are, have an opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one with people. Um, and it's, I, I really do, this is going to sound like everybody says the same terminology, but it truly, truly is a game changer. We're, we're getting probably 90, 95% of people out of pain within one to three sessions. And, and, and the effect tends to stick weeks and months and sometimes years, depends on what they're doing. But that's our flagship. Uh, that's a little bit more involved. Uh, but then we have Square, I'm sorry, we have Six Six. And my, I'm always, I was a little bit hesitant to put that out there. And we have a label like Six Six is level one and Square One is level two. But it's a little bit of misnomer. You don't really need to do level one, Six Six first. Six Six was developed with strength coaches in mind. So what it was, we had some couple, we have a couple strength coaches down around Asheville, North Carolina, and they're really good at Square One. And it bugged me that, man, there are these coaches at these small, you know, D2, D3 schools, and they really can't use square one because they're like the soccer coach, but they're also the strength coach of the soccer team and they're the athletic trainer. There were like 10 hats, like, man, they don't really have an opportunity to do square one with their athletes. I need to give them something a little bit more dumbed down. Not that they couldn't understand it, but something they could apply right now with an athlete where they didn't need to educate the athlete very you know, highly. So six, six is a really quick, easy to learn. It's really like a, you can add it into your one 
warm up. You can add into the cool down. It's really, it's a, it's a 30 to 60 second add on. You can just kind of sprinkle it into the athlete's life. They can learn it and do it on their own. And it really is, it's just targeting uh, the T-spine, the lumbar spine, the hips and the knees, uh, the most common areas where we find like disorganization and relationship to the ground. And it's just a real easy to learn uh, isometric intervention. So it's not very heady. It's nowhere near as effective as square one, but it's, I would say it's like strangely effective. It's like, we're kind of going fishing where the fish tend to hang out. So I'd say 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the time, athletes get something good out of it. And we just had a, we had a strength coach recently who asked, he said, hey, what are some functional outcomes you've seen change with Sig Six? Says, hey, man, like we see range of motion change. But one thing I've seen a little bit, but I haven't tested a lot is right versus left single leg broad jump. So he did that. And two thirds of his athletes were jumping further after just doing Sig Six. So for a $95 program that all your athletes can do, I, I think it's a no brainer. If, if half your athletes are jumping better because of it, that's that, that's pretty tough to beat for 95 bucks. Um, that's my, yeah, that's I, my I jumped on standard. that like the day after the state championship game, I was uh, getting ready to, to start my new programming and I saw it. I'd, I'd been wanting to do it. So I did it. It is simple. I think it's a great starting point for people that want to get their eyes yep. looking through a neural lens because yep. the things we talked about today, motor control, motor learning, the different terminology that you would use to deal as far as with the skeleton system and, and some of the other things, it's going to be discussed in that uh, program as well. So I find I found value in beginning to look at that. It's a great first look into the neural perspective. And then again, it is very simple to use. I utilize it with my guys. I've got 45 to 50 adolescent boys. We know what their attention span is, and I've been able to run it successfully. So I do promote it, and uh, I do think it's awesome. Square one is obviously individual, and it, like you said, it's a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. But anybody yep. that, that wants to go down that way, the logic behind everything you've presented today uh, makes me ask you, kind of like Dan Fichter said, why wouldn't you? So yep. why wouldn't I love it, yeah. So I appreciate you for coming on today and sharing your perspective. It's a different perspective, but it's a perspective I hope in the next couple of years will be the normal perspective for the industry. So thank you so much for coming on and taking some time out of your day for me today. Dude, thanks for carving out time for me and giving me an audience with your audience. I'm very grateful. Thanks for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed Sean's perspective and took something away about brain-based solutions to everyday issues. Don't forget to check out his content on Instagram and at squareonesystem.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave me a rating and review if you feel led to do so.